0: The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcralee.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Last Sunday we saw the first sign that Jesus performed, which was turning water into wine in the wedding at Cana. A sign, as we saw from John 2, verse 11, is a very important word it describes something that happens miraculously as a real historical event but also teaches something eternally significant beyond that event so it points to truth beyond just what was observable and that truth becomes clear as the people have seen the sign believe in the person who performed it remember John has told us that in his gospel there were many signs Jesus recorded that are not recorded in this book But these are recorded so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. I thought it was helpful for me, and hopefully for you last Sunday, to structure the teaching this way. First, let's walk through the historical event, and then talk about the eternal import of the sign, and I'll do that again this morning. So we'll look here today at the second sign. Here's what you'll notice right away, especially if you were here last week. These are very different signs. Everything about them is almost in contrast. What happens at the the wedding turning water to wine is markedly different than what happens at the temple when Jesus drives out people who are impurely approaching worship. John 2 verse 12, if you look there for a second, says after this. And I think those two words are helpful. They indicate That it is not on accident that John has chosen to record these two together side by side. He has recorded these two together side by side for a reason. So if we start by contrasting them, it will help prepare us for what the teaching is this morning. All right, the wedding, what was the problem? They're out of wine. The celebration is going to stop. Here at the temple, what do the people think the problem is? They don't think they have a problem. They're busy with religious activity. All right, at the wedding, what is the miracle? Jesus takes w- water, but he fills empty jars to the full. Here at the temple, he drives out religious activity. At the wedding, what Jesus does is quiet, it's private, it's hidden. Here at the temple, what Jesus does is public, dramatic, and decisive. At the wedding, the people have to realize at the heart level they have emptiness that needs to be filled. At the temple, they are packed and need to be emptied. At the wedding, there's a contrast with somebody realizing they have emptiness, with at the temple, a contrast with someone who thinks they have fullness think of it this way that contrast will happen all through John in chapter 4 Jesus will meet a woman at the well who is broken who perceives that she is empty and what does Jesus promise her he says I can provide you water that you'll never have to draw again and restated you're empty and I can fill you to Nicodemus who's a very busy religious person in John 3 Jesus says to him you need to be emptied You need to be born again. So I think the two first signs, the wedding and the temple, are contrasting these two hard approaches. At the wedding, it's as if someone is saying, Jesus, I am empty, please fill me. And at the temple, it's as if someone is saying, Jesus, I am busy, don't bother me. That helps prepare us for his dramatic, decisive work in John 2. I think if you at the wedding were very encouraged that Jesus can fill you, then this text will hopefully encourage you more. But I'll speak very frankly. If last Sunday you thought, I don't really need that, then today's text is for you, friend. Today's text is for those who think that I have it all in order. I, I check every box. I'm doing everything the way I'm supposed to be doing. I'm filled with all the activity that I should be doing, Jesus comes to show us how empty we actually are. So here, John 2, verse 13, the second sign of Jesus. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. I don't want to give you more information than you need, but at least the basic information to help you understand what this is. The Passover is the most important Jewish festival on the calendar. All male Jews are required to go to Jerusalem for this festival. So this city of Jerusalem would be teeming with people, perhaps an extra 400,000 people coming to the city for this all-important festival to remember how God had rescued people by cost of a substitute from the death that they deserve through the salvation that he provides. Most scholars think that this Passover was probably on April 7th of A.D. 30. It always happened in the spring, close to our Easter time. That's probably when this one happened. So the Passover requires people to come to Jerusalem. Jesus joins the rest of the people. But now verse 14, in the temple. Now I'm going to talk about what he found in the temple. But first I need you to picture the temple. The temple. Because if you understand what they understood, what the original reader would have understood, you'll catch this text much better if you know what the temple was like. The temple was the pride of the Jewish people. It's not like our culture today where high rises go up all the time. This is the best building they have. And it is glorious. The renovations that Herod have done to it have made it sparkle in a way it never has. Not only is this their best building, this is the best that building has ever been. All right, here's what Josephus, the historian, wrote. The exterior of the temple wanted nothing that could astound either the mind or the eye. For being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold The sun was no sooner up than it radiated a fiery flash so that a person starting to look at it had to avert their eyes from the solar rays. To approaching strangers, the temple appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was overlaid with gold was of the purest white. It was a beautiful building. The rabbis, who were not friends of Herod, nevertheless said this about his renovations. He who has never seen the temple of Herod has never seen a beautiful building. So this is one of the wonders of the ancient world. It is a beautiful, glorious structure. It's important that you know that for what's going to follow. It's also not just beautiful in its architecture. It's the center of everything, the center of commerce, the center of religion, the center of society, the center of politics, the center of the capital. It is central in importance Also, the last thing for you to know to understand this text, it is massive. So the temple proper is 15 stories high. You have on the west side, the court for the priests, the court for the Jewish males. On the east side, you have the court for women. But then, picture four American football fields of size, you have the court of the Gentiles. Picture all those hundreds of people in there. And now, let's read the rest of verse 14. In the temple, knowing now what it looks like, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So here Jesus comes to this central place of worship for the central remembrance of salvation. And here's what he finds the temple packed with commerce and convenience. What is it that he finds that's so troubling? And I'll be honest, um, many commentators don't have full consensus on this, I'm gonna tell you what I think are the four things that he finds, and I'll take time on them. First, I think he finds that because they're packed in the outer courts, they're crowding out pure worship from happening there. They're pushing out worshipers. Second, I think the commerce itself is a dilution of pure worship. Third, I think it therefore confuses the nature of how one is accepted before God. And fourth, I think there's at least possible corruption done with this captive audience. So let's look at those. First, it's crowding out worshipers. D.A. Carson writes, Jesus' complaint is that they should not be in the temple area at all. It helps to know in history, they did this commerce in the Kidron Valley. So to be clear, it is not wrong for them to provide animals for those who are traveling from a distance. Perhaps you live Miles and miles away, or even like Jesus' own parents, Mary and Joseph, who traveled through Bethlehem where they acquired a pigeon because that's all they could afford. It's not wrong that they're providing the animals there. It's not even wrong that they're exchanging the currency there. But they've set up inside the temple unnecessarily. And in doing so, they have pushed out especially any non-Jews from being able to enter. And this caused a pervasive problem that pushed people away from God who sincerely wanted to come to God. We have a lot of archaeological excavations of the temple that show us the spirit behind those who were pushing out the Gentiles. We have an inscription in Greek so that non-Jews can read it. Here's what it said. No stranger is to enter within the partition wall. Whoever is caught will be responsible for himself and for his death which will ensue this inscription found in the temple was to separate the outer court from the Jewish inner courts. And now they've packed the outer court so the non-Jews can't even come. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing, though, is it diminishes the reverence of worship. One commentator wrote, instead of solemn dignity and the quiet murmur of prayer, which was the purpose for this, there is bellowing of cattle and bleeding of sheep. Instead of brokenness and contrition, There is noisy commerce. So picture hundreds, thousands of people in these four football fields clamoring and haggling over prices. That brings me to the third. It therefore confuses the nature of how one is accepted before God. Remember, the temple symbolizes the presence of God. But if I can't get there, if I can't make my way in, and if on the route there all I hear is haggling and commerce... And it's very likely that the symbolic truth that it's meant to represent, that I can enter God's presence only through a substitute who pays for my sin and I can be accepted by grace through faith, is all lost through currency and achievement. I think there's a fourth thing, and that is this setup is at least a setup that makes corruption possible. Now, I want to be fair that in John 2, it technically never says that anybody is price gouging or taking advantage of anyone else financially. It never points out greed. But this is not the only time Jesus cleanses the temple. This is the first and early time in his ministry. A second time later, recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when he clears the temple, he says, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. They're clearly indicating that something greedy was happening there. Let me press out how that may work. I think it was happening from two standpoints. Have you ever been in a place where you know that you're a captive audience, you've gone a distance, and now you have to purchase only the options they have available? Picture an airport. If you're in an airport and you'd like a bottle of water, it's $23, (laughs) plus 8% sales tax. They know you can't go anywhere else. Here are people who have traveled by foot from far distances and they have made it inside the court of the Gentiles. All the distance that they've come, this is their only option. Don't you think when you match human sin with opportunity that there would be some corruption? Don't you know how many government programs were a long time ago meant to help people? (laughs) And now there's some of the most corrupt slush funds there are. It starts with good intent. I guess what I'm trying to say is this. There was a hill outside our church in Michigan. It was a slope that was not a dangerous slope. But once a year in the summer, we would lay a tarp on that slope and we would cover it in baby oil and soap and water and the teenagers would get inner tubes and they would turn it into a slip and slide. See, the the slope at first was not slippery. But when you add certain elements, it's very slippery. You add humans and money, there's a good chance you'll have a problem. Everything happening here at, inside the court does not belong inside the court. And now that it's here, people are losing sight of the reason they were to come here. And we have a clue in the text. Verse 14. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen, and sheep, and what's the third one? Pigeons. If you know your Bible well, you know that pigeons were meant to be a concession for the poorest of the poor. This is told to us in Leviticus 12. But in verse 16, go ahead and look ahead to verse 16. When Jesus addresses those who are abusing the temple, notice he only addresses those who are selling the pigeons. I think that's at least a clue that from the seller's side they're trying to sell the cheapest thing at a markup and from the buyer's side they're trying to buy the cheapest possible option if they've traveled from distances no one would know their true economic situation but now that they're in Jerusalem they can pretend that they can only afford the cheapest option and surely are probably haggling for a better rate than the tent next to them see everything that the Passover is supposed to indicate is being lost in convenience and commerce and one-upsmanship and noisy business. And so verse fifteen. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. We ought to always be careful that we hear the word of God clearly because it's revealing who God is. So we want the word of God to reveal accurately who God is so that we understand him accurately. Let's make sure we do that in verse 15. Lest we think that Jesus lost his temper or that he behaved in a sinful way, a couple things may help you. Notice verse 15. He took the time to make a whip of cords, which indicates control. When you fly off the handle, you're not doing that. Also, we lose something in English. In English, it says whip of cords, but in in Greek, it's the word for rushes. So if you picture long grass, that's what the whip would have been made out of. This is not Indiana Jones's whip. No one's getting hurt by this. No one can get hit by this. No one can bleed by this. It doesn't even make noise. It's like having a little bit of grass just to shake the animals out. So don't be concerned that he has a harsh temperament. He, he surely doesn't. This is still the gracious, good creator of the universe. But he drives everyone out of the temple. Now, don't forget, this is a sign, which means it is showing eternal truth beyond just the event. Are you ready to see some of the eternal truth? Look at he drove them all out. They're all outside, and they lose their belongings. I want you to notice then that these people that are doing religious activity are actually banished by the king from the symbolic presence of God. They are put outside the temple. The temple represents the presence of God. And when they are driven outside, they lose everything they had before they left. Do you see the lesson? It's what Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount with. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do this? Didn't we do this? And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. You were doing all sorts of religious stuff. You never knew me. You didn't have a relationship with me through faith. And so you're outside and you lose all the belongings you had when you were in. That's why he overturns the coins and shakes over the tables. There's another clue that this is a sign I mean, it's said that they all were driven out. This is hundreds, if not thousands of people plus animals. How did a single man with the weakest whip in history drive them all out of the temple by himself? I think the answer is one that we can understand on a smaller scale. Have you ever been in a social setting where everybody was behaving a certain way, but then when one person walks in the room, it immediately stops? the behavior immediately changes because when that person walks in, the whole room is different. You see, this is the authority of God in flesh. When Jesus walks in the temple, everybody intuitively knows, I I need to listen to him. I am not what I should be doing. Now, you'll see in a second, they try to self-justify, but the initial reaction to the coming of the true king is we ought to go. I mean, how does this By himself, he drives all these people out of here. The presence of God cannot be denied, even if it's avoided. My wife and I at home are reading a book that's been very helpful for us on a devotional level. It's called Gentle and Lowly. Perhaps you've read it as well. It's very good, it points out the heart of Christ in ways that are so warm and necessary. We don't want to miss, though, the full picture of scripture of what Jesus is like. And this text reminds us that not only, praise God, is Jesus gentle and lowly. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out, Isaiah tells us. But also, he is zealous and holy. And praise God for that as well. He is both gentle and zealous. He is both lowly and holy. They are both reasons to praise him. His action here further demonstrates that what he is doing is righteous zeal. Malachi 3 tells us in verse 1, suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger whom you desire will come. Verse 3, he will sit as a refiner and purifier. He will purify the Levites and refine them and then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. Here's the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. The Lord has come to his temple and purified it. Friend, I wonder if you agree that Jesus has the right to rearrange the furniture. He has the right to do that in our lives as well. Verse 16, and he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written Zeal for your house will consume me a quote from Psalm 69 where David as the king after God's own heart has a zeal for the temple here the final king the final David has a zeal for the true temple for true worship his coming also I think fulfills Zechariah 14 21 which talks about the Messiah's coming which will mean there's no more trading within the house of the Lord here the Messiah has come but notice how these people respond They've been driven out. Here they come blinking into the sun, having lost their money. Animals scattered all over the place. Now that the dust settles, they dig in their heels. Verse 18, so the Jews, you know John uses the word Jews normally to refer to the Jewish religious leaders. These are probably temple officials or Sanhedrin. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? What credibility do you have, Jesus? What gives you the right to drive us out? Do you know what the most unfortunate thing is? They never stop and consider they needed to be driven out. They never say, maybe my life was so far off what it's supposed to be. I needed these smelling salts. I needed a wake-up call. Thank you. I've been stuck in dead religious ritual for years. Thank you for helping me see I'm wasting my life. No, instead what authority do you have to keep us from business as usual? Don't bother me, Jesus. I like the way things are. Interesting that they asked for a sign, isn't it? Sign is the word that John has used to record these miracles that operate on two levels. It's also the word that Paul will use in 2 Corinthians 1, when he says the foolishness of the preaching of the cross is what saves, but it's a stumbling block because Jews demand a sign, a sign, something that could maybe make me think that I have to change the way I'm doing things. Jesus answers in a beautiful, incredible way in verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Notice his words carefully. Who's destroying the temple? Not him, them. And yet in three days, he can raise it up. Jesus does something brilliant here. He speaks at two levels. Sometimes when people speak at two levels, it's humorous. Have you ever seen Abbott and Costello's Who's on First? I love that one. What's on second? I don't know who's on third. I could watch that over and over. Jesus does something a little bit similar here. At one level, they have to think he's talking about the temple right behind them. You're going to destroy that? If you destroy that, or we're going to destroy that, if that's destroyed by us, there's no way you could bring it back in three days. But if you could, I guess we should listen to you. But wait, why would Jesus speak ambiguously? Why Why not just be more clearly? Here's why. I want you to see it in the verse that follows. Verse 20, then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Don't you hear their pride in the temple? And you'll raise it up in three days? They're not going to ever let that test be proved because they can't live without that temple. You see? No, the religious activity we have, the performance routines that we have, that's what all our confidence is. We'll never let you take that away. Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. No statement could be more massive. Last week, Jesus took ceremonial purification jars and filled them with wine so they could never be used for ceremony again. The old had passed and the new had come. Here he lets them know that temple that you put so much hope in and so much confidence and It has only ever existed to prepare for the true temple, and he's right in front of you. Don't you understand what the temple is? The temple is the sanctuary where the holy can walk with man. From Eden, God walking with humans. The tabernacle where God could meet with humans in a mediated, layered sense. Now the temple, a symbol of God meeting with people, and now the true temple, the body of Jesus Christ, one that would be raised in three days. All right, that's the historical event. Now let's look at at least three truths of the eternal significance and impact that this sign points to, and here's the first. Life with God only comes in Jesus And everything revealed by God intends to lead him. All of the things that they had put their hope in were preparatory. But now that they've arrived, they don't see them. This is why 2 Corinthians 3.16 says, Only when one turns to the Lord Jesus is the veil removed. By coming to him, it all makes sense. By refusing to come to him, none of it makes sense. Nor is any of it used well. See, John 1, 1 through 18 is the prologue. It's the table of contents. It's the best table of contents ever written. The law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's the water to wine. But here is John 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and tabernacled, templed among us, and we've beheld his glory. Here's the glory of God. It's the true temple. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, one that will be destroyed by man and yet raised by God. Verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what we had said, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. After Christ raises from the dead, now looking through the lens of Jesus Christ, the scriptures make sense. Friend, here's what I'd want you to understand this morning. Until you come to Jesus, the Bible doesn't make much sense. Once you see through Jesus, it all makes sense. It all clicks when they remember he's the one who resurrected and it's his body that was raised. All right, so the first point, it all comes through Jesus or it doesn't click at all. Here's the second point. If we take pride in our visible achievements, we blind ourselves to our spiritual failure. They're thrilled at what the temple looks like. It's a great architectural achievement. They can't imagine living without it. It's like the most well-known part of the city. Have you think of a city's name, you might think of a specific building, like Seattle has the needle, and you associate it with that place. Jerusalem has the temple. It's the main thing, but the temple has actually become their chief stumbling block. Jesus will prophesy that that temple will be destroyed, and in A.D. 70, it is. The Romans come and demolish it, and interestingly, so also, from that day until now, have the Jewish people tried to find some way to resume that approach. Stumbling block has never been fixed because they didn't realize the real temple had come. (laughs) He had come to fulfill it. I don't know if you've been to New York City after 9-11. You can go to where the two towers once stood and see a memorial to what was once there. Similarly, as the temple is destroyed by the time John writes his gospel, all they can think is memorializing what was lost rather than what truly came. Ironically, Israel has become like Nebuchadnezzar, whose pride in his achievements was the writing on the wall before their demolition. Of course, it's not wrong to have beautiful worship buildings, but don't you know as humans how easily we put the cart before the horse? Think of the most beautiful buildings once intended for worship all over the globe. Go to Europe, go to the Middle East, go to Asia, find these ornate buildings that have almost no one who gathers in them who knows Christ. This is what's happening here in the first century. And that leads me to the third and final truth of the symbol. When worship loses its proper object, it is false worship. If you forget who you're there for, then what you're doing doesn't matter. You never find worship by trying to have good worship. You find worship by finding Christ. You come to Jesus and you find his glory. Then you have worship. You can never do it the other way. It never goes the other way. By having Christ, then you have joy. You see, here's what's happening. They're supposed to be there for the Passover to remember our sin. And yet a lamb whose blood goes over the door and God's incredible grace to forgive sinners through the cost of the death of a substitute. And now the substitute is actually there. And when the substitute Jesus arrives, nobody cares about the symbol of the Passover. They just care about the best price on the pigeons. Everything about it has been lost, which leads us to a question for us. Can we forget the heart of who we are and what God's done for us? And yet keep the motions and mechanics long before we realize it's gone. You know what scares me the most as a pastor? Getting so busy doing ministry stuff that I don't realize the power of God is gone from my life. Filling my calendar, doing my to do list, carrying out all the stuff I'm supposed to do. If there is not a love for Him who would not spare His own Son, if there is not a joy, that Jesus Christ bears my sins, if there is not a movement in me freshly, daily, because of the salvation that comes in Christ, what am I doing? What are any of us doing? Sin and death and salvation are as important as it gets, but here they've been reduced to ritual and marketplace convenience. Both of the signs, did you notice what both of them refer to in the wedding at Cana, the wine reminds Jesus of his own blood, which will be shed. Here, the temple reminds Jesus of his own body, which will be broken. Jesus is constantly thinking about the cross. In the Lord of the Rings, there is this helpful section where Frodo is described as a person who can close their eyes and yet know where the sun is because they constantly feel it beating on them. And that's how Frodo felt about the weight of getting rid of the ring. Here our Lord Jesus, in truth, constantly thinks on the weight of the cross ahead of him. It is of such focused importance to him. And yet, so many of his disciples don't seem to care. And that helps us understand 23 through 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, apparently a few days later, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Sounds great. They're believing until verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. In the original, it's a play on words. They believed in him but he did not believe in them. Here are these people that have spent years in empty religious ritual, and they apparently try to hop on the bandwagon for a little bit, but Jesus knows they haven't really come to him. They're not delighting in him. They're just thinking there might be another niche to their religious ritual. So what's the second sign? The first sign is performing. Water to wine at a wedding. But the second sign is not really the clearing of the temple. It's the resurrection of the true temple. Jesus has not just come to show them they need pure worship. He's come to provide them with the new life that enables it. When they destroy that temple, He will raise it God Father, God Son, and God Spirit, raising Jesus bodily from the dead. And in that, friend, He promises us the very thing that's lacking in John 2, the new life that enables true worship. Romans 6 tells us if anyone has died with Christ, he is dead to sin, but if anyone is alive to Christ, he is risen to walk in newness of life. What they lacked at the temple in Jerusalem, Jesus provides in the person of his own body. So this morning, will you do what They did at the wedding. Will you bring your empty jar to Jesus? Or will we respond like those in Jerusalem, Jesus, I'm too busy. Instead, let us be still and let him fill what is actually in need. Let's pray together this morning. God, thank you for the signs that Jesus Christ performed and for putting them together for our intended belief in the Lord Jesus Christ so that we might have true life. This second one is more subtle. The first one seems a little clearer to me, at least, that we're empty and we need to be filled. But the second one is a little harder because we're busy and we think we don't need to be bothered. So I thank you, Lord, that Jesus loves us enough to break up our busyness So that we have to stand back and say, wait, what what am I doing actually? What has captured my heart? What is it that motivates and drives me? And there's no question that the world is full of religious activity, and not all of that religious activity is actually flowing from life in Christ. Some of it is just man made religion, even using Christian symbols. And that is not a new problem. So may we take seriously the smelling salts of the end of John 2. And may you open our hearts to consider our relationship with Jesus Christ. And to not layer that or evade that through a packed schedule of ministry. In Christ I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scali pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcralheigh.com. That's e-b-c-r-a-l-e-i-g-h dot com.